Hello and welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac podcast. I am very excited to be recording this special episode for you all. This is part one of our Halloween-related episode. I am your host, Sarah, and I am recording by myself this evening, which is not the usual, but my typical co-hosts were not available for recording, and as you all know, the show must go on. In case you were all wondering, this is the podcast for all of you out there that secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It is not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have scoped out WebMD more than our fair share of the times. We are just here to talk about weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. Before we get started, we have our typical disclaimers. First and foremost, we are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals. Please don't take what we say as medical advice. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, see a doctor. Don't guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and future. Let's jump right into our very special Halloween episode. And what I'm going to start out with is an article I found from microhealth.com. And the article is called 10 Zombie-Like Diseases That Kill. Dun-dun-dun. The article was written by Carla Ponciano. And here it is. The zombie craze has not yet subsided, despite the fact that many of you have finished all the episodes of The Walking Dead. Movies like World War Z and Resident Evil stimulate our minds about the possibilities of real-life zombies sweeping across the nation. They were plagued by unstoppable groups of viruses that change innocent citizens into horrifying and bloodthirsty freaks with a taste for brains. Although part of the fun is that the terror probably does not exist, this is not entirely true. Zombies are a real-life phenomena and not in a way that you would necessarily expect them to be. There are some diseases that could make you look or even behave like a real zombie. Some of them could be lethal and others are simply sickening to the eye. The first one on this particular list is rabies. Rabies is actually one of the deadliest viruses known to mankind. It is so grave that the only known survivors known to live are the ones who received the rabies vaccine beforehand. With just one bite from an infected, warm-blooded animal, the infected patient becomes rabid within a few weeks or months. And as you all In my generation, we saw the movie Cujo, where that big, huge St. Bernard ended up with rabies. It has only been in recent times that rabies wasn't sort of a death sentence for whoever got bitten. The initial symptoms of rabies include fever, chills, vomiting, anxiety, agitation, loss of appetite, irritability, sleeping problems, and extreme tiredness. 10 days after the onset of the initial symptoms, rabid patients usually develop zombie-like aggressive behaviors like biting and thrashing, delusions, hallucinations, excessive salivation, high fever, and excessive sweating. They also experience a fear of water, which is hydrophobia. Even the mention of the word water can cause some of these patients to have uncontrollable spasms. They may also develop a fear of light, which is photophobia, and a fear of flying, which is aerophobia. 
A few days after having these advanced symptoms, the affected individual soon falls into a coma and dies. According to the World Health Organization, Asia and Africa have the highest number of rabies cases and deaths. 40% of these patients suspected of being bitten by rabid animals are actually children, which is very, very sad. And dogs are the most common source of rabies infection, although other animals like cats and bats also carry the virus and can transmit it to human beings. Also, raccoons, possums, and a number of other of those types of animals can easily transmit rabies to humans. It is a frightening, frightening thing to consider, but the good news is if you live here in the U.S., getting a vaccination at before you develop the more advanced symptoms and right after you get bitten by an animal you suspect might have rabies can actually do quite a bit to curtail the symptoms and help with a speedy recovery so that it does not become a lethal disease. Sleeping sickness. The sleeping disease, also known as the human African Trypanosomiasis is a parasitic disease transmitted by the teeth fly or tsetse fly. That's T-S-E-T-S-E fly. It's a species found in the sub-Saharan part of Africa. Many regions in Africa have these types of flies, but for some unknown reason, only a few places on the continent are endemic for the occurrence of sleeping sickness. This particular illness comes in two forms. One, which is the Trypanosoma brucei gambisae, which accounts for 98% of cases and is found in 24 countries in Africa. And the second portion, which is Trypanosoma brucei rodinsei, the more aggressive type. And I apologize if I have butchered these names, these Latin names for the diseases, because I am absolutely not a medical professional and did not study these in school. But this second particular type is a more aggressive type, and it represents less than 2% of the reported cases of the sleeping sickness. A third form of sleeping, of sleeping sickness, the Changa disease, occurs in Latin America and is transmitted by another organism that is different from the usual genus of fly found in Africa. The sleeping sickness has two stages. The first one is the phase where the particular illness begins to multiply in the lymph, blood, and subcutaneous tissue of the affected individuals. This causes nonspecific symptoms like fever, chills, joint pain, itching, and headache. The second stage is the phase where the parasite crosses the brain barrier and invades the central nervous system, causing zombie-like and neurological manifestations like poor motor coordination, changes in behavior, sensory disturbances, and confusion, which is very zombie-like according to what we see in movies. Sleep disturbance, the reason why it is also called sleeping sickness, is the most important symptom seen in this stage. Without proper treatment, sleeping sickness is considered fatal, although there are a few who end up being healthy carriers of the sleeping sickness without developing full-blown illness. The next item on this list is nodding disease. Nodding disease is a mysterious neurological condition that was first documented in the 60s in Tanzania. The exact cause of nodding disease is unknown. 
The WHO team says that 93% of cases occur in places where the parasitic worm Onchochera volus are abundant, and most of the patients afflicted with this problem also have concomitant vitamin B6 deficiency. Children aged 5 to 15 years old are most commonly affected by this health problem. Uganda reported a nodding disease outbreak in February 2012 when it documented more than 3,000 new cases of nodding disease in the three districts of Pader, Kitgum, and Lamwo. The symptoms of nodding disease are progressive cognitive dysfunction, a characteristic nodding of the head, stunted growth, and neurological deterioration. However, children with this problem also develop some other bizarre zombie-like symptoms. Some start fires and appear traumatized, while others tend to wander around and get lost in even the most familiar of places. Very, very odd disease, and one that I have not heard of in my time on the show. I think it would be quite frightening to find someone that had the uncontrollable symptoms and the cognitive dysfunction so that they're getting lost and they're disoriented. The next disease on this list is one that most of us have probably heard of, and it's called leprosy. And it actually may be as old as the first known civilizations. Zombies and leprosy share some common features. Both are popular for decaying body parts and rotting flesh. In fact, there have been reported cases recorded approximately 4,000 years ago in Egypt, China, India, and Africa. Leprosy causes damage to the nerves of affected individuals, causing numbness and a, show, and a slow shuffling, most commonly associated with classic zombie movies. The decaying appearance of the skin of patients with leprosy is comparable with the skin of those actors and actresses portraying them that are said to be undead. With the use of multidrug therapy, many people with leprosy are now able to be cured. Although, as of the year 2000, almost 16 million patients were diagnosed and cured over the past 20 years. In fact, 95% of the global population is now naturally immune to leprosy. So it's one of those particular diseases that has a very, very ancient beginning, but has pretty much been eradicated through most of the developing world and is now, the population is in fact becoming immune to it, so it is eliminating it naturally. Very, very interesting. The next thing on this list is Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. This is the equivalent of mad cow disease in humans and is a very rare, degenerative, and most often fatal brain issue occurring in one in every one million individuals worldwide every year. In the U.S., 300 cases of this particular disease are reported annually according to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke which I didn't even know that was such a thing. Anyway, at the early stages of this disease, zombie-like characteristics and behavior changes, including a lack of coordinated muscle movements, are often seen. Other symptoms associated with early Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease include visual disturbances and memory loss. 
As this brain disorder progresses, blindness, involuntary movements, and mental deterioration become more and more pronounced. Finally, the patient succumbs to the disease, becomes comatose, and later perishes. The exact cause of this disease is not known. However, many scientists believe that creutzfeldt jakob disease is caused by a protein called prion. This disease may lay dormant for as long as 50 years. Transmission of the disease usually occurs through direct contact with the brain tissue or spinal cord fluid of infected individuals. Once the symptoms set in, 60 to 90% of infected individuals usually die within a year. Very, very scary. Here's another one on this list that I have never heard of. This one is called running amok or amok. Running amok is a rare cultural brown syndrome usually found in Malay tribes that causes an affected individual to act irrationally and cause havoc. People who experience running havoc amok usually acquire temporary indiscriminate and mentally stable behavior with homicidal and suicidal thoughts. They also often cause multiple fatalities and injuries. The occurrence of running amok in the modern world is almost unheard of, and reports of this unusual psychiatric problem stopped in the mid-20th century. Very, very strange. Another one on this list is neurofibromatosis. People with neurofibromatosis, a genetic disorder that causes tumor-like cell growth in the tissues of the nervous system, are feared for their appearance. Neurofibromatosis causes the appearance of numerous soft lumps, usually caused by benign nerve tissue tumors. The development of larger-than-normal head circumference, Bone deformities and a short stature is also common with this particular ailment. Neurofibromatosis is usually non-infectious. Therefore, there is no real reason for you to avoid people with this kind of health issue. The Children's Tumor Foundation states that neurofibromatosis is the most common single gene associated neurological disorder and one in every 3,000 babies has this nerve tissue problem. Very, very sad and it does not necessarily appear that there is any cure for that one either. The next item on this list is necrotizing fasciitis also known as the flesh-eating infection, and I believe we did an earlier show on the podcast about this particular ailment. It is a very rare disease in which several types of bacteria release toxins that cause the affected soft tissues to die. Most people who are healthy don't get this particular illness. However, once the immune system weakens, opportunistic bacteria like the ones that cause necrotizing fasciitis, can cause havoc. The first symptoms of this are often very confusing for people. Pain and muscle soreness usually occur and are often the first complaints of patients with this problem. The skin then becomes warm and red and sometimes purplish. Ulcers and blisters then erupt on the skin surfaces, which can cause a zombie-like appearance. Fever, tiredness, and sometimes vomiting can then occur, causing patients to seek the help of their physicians. There are about 650 to 800 cases of this particular illness in the U.S. every single year. 
The figure is most likely an underestimate, underestimate though, since some cases are probably not reported or the symptoms may cause the patients to think that perhaps some other illness is involved. Very, very scary indeed. Yaws. Yaws is a chronic infection that affects the skin, joints, and bones. The bacteria that causes this is a cousin of syphilis. But unlike the latter, it is not a sexually transmitted illness. You can acquire yaws by direct contact with those who have had yaws skin sores. Two to four weeks after the initial contact, a sore called the mother yaw develops. This sore is usually non-painful but itchy. Other sores appear after the mother yaw heals. These multiple sores often cause people who are infected to look like zombies. Other symptoms of yaws include swelling of the bones and fingers, bone pain, and scarring of the skin. In the advanced stages of yaw, the bone and skin sores usually result in disability and severe disfigurement. However, people who do not receive proper antibacterial treatment are the only ones who develop the advanced stage of yaws. Africa, Asia, and the Pacific Islands usually have the highest occurrence of this particular illness. Another disease on this list is Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. If you've tried playing the game Plants vs. Zombie before, then this fungus will leave quite an impression on you. Scientists lie in agonizing fear of when this particular disease a type of fungus seen in plants will start cross-infecting human beings. This particular illness knows exactly where its host's brain is located, controls it, and induces its host to have biting tendencies. This is why experts now call it the zombie ant fungi. Luckily, mankind does not encounter any fungus that behaves like this in humans as of yet, and hopefully we never will. But you never know. That might potentially be something that we have to deal with at some point. The next article I found on BBC.com, and it's called The Real Life Diseases That Spread the Vampire Myth. Vampires are some of the most enduring monsters we have created. Diseases that plagued our ancestors played a part in their creation. This article by Stephen Dowling was first published in 2016 on BBC.com. Diseases were frightening things before the age of medical science. Plagues and endemics could appear without warning and cause death or misery. It wasn't just plagues, though. Other diseases, perhaps passed on by animals or from genes lying dormant in their own bodies, could cause ailments that have often defied explanation. People turn instead to the supernatural to try to explain some of these phenomena. Some of these diseases help spawn one of the most enduring and widespread monster myths in civilization, and that is the vampire myth. The vampire, an undead figure who rises each night from the unquiet grave to feast on the blood of the living, has appeared since the time of ancient Greeks. While some of the sage philosophers we still admire today might have lived into their 70s, Life expectancy in ancient Greece was sought to be around 28 years old, which is pretty damn young. Centuries before sanitation, refrigeration, and antibiotics, diseases were more prevalent and were far more likely to take people into an early grave. 
but without a microscope to study these weird little things. Communities in older times usually saw supernatural reasons behind the many diseases that plagued the populations. Take porphyria, for instance, which affects heme, the chemical compound which helps make up the hemoglobin found in our blood. Patients suffer itching, rashes, and blisters every time their skin is exposed to sunlight. In the very worst, and thankfully very rare cases, the gums recede from the teeth, making them appear far more prominent. Their body begins to waste and takes on a purple hue as well, like that of undigested blood. And the effects of sensitivity to light can be so severe that sufferers lose their ears and noses. This is something that is echoed in the looks of vampires that are often talked about in literature. Most of the sufferers from this particular illness will show far less dramatic symptoms than those I just described. There are probably no more than a few hundred of these severe cases in the world at any one time, but their incidents may have had great may have been greater in remote communities in medieval times. Ones which had less frequent contact with the outside world and a less varied gene pool. The rural hamlets and farming villages in Transylvania, now part of Romania, fit this bill. And it is from Eastern European regions like Transylvania that the vampire myth spread westward. Some authors, such as Bram Stoker, created the Dracula myth in literature. But it began to gain the most popularity in the early 18th century. The first mention of the word vampire in the English language was in the 1730s in newspapers, which began reports from the edge of Europe of bodies being dug up and looking bloated and having fresh blood around their mouths. They reported these stories and they are supposed to have come from peasants. But despite the fact that it could be quite, amount, quite a bit of fiction involved in this, some of them sound pretty plausible. When calamity struck in the rural areas in these small towns like Transylvania, plague and cattle dying caused many people to point the finger at an undead spirit preying on the living. Often the first act would be to dig up the last person who died in the village. And this leads us to another problem. Medical science was in such infancy at that time that even telling if a person died wasn't exactly foolproof. Diseases like catalepsy, which put people into a catatonic state so deep that their pulse was hard to detect, meant that some people were actually buried alive. If they woke, some were driven so mad with fear and hunger that they would bite themselves. An explanation perhaps for some of the corpses found with fresh blood. Most people in these communities kept animals. The villages themselves were usually close to forest and woodlands, which were home to many other animals. Before vaccination was discovered, rabies, now virtually unknown in the European wild, was a lot more common. Once the symptoms, which included aversion to light, water, and aggression, biting and delirium developed, death was pretty inevitable back then because there was no cure. Rabies is obviously where we get the link to the werewolf, too, says one particular author. People were turned feral by this contact with animals, and there is such a degree of folk wisdom in the werewolf myth 
that a warning was issued for people not to connect themselves too much to the natural world. These people were told to remember their humanity. The isolation of many of these small communities back in medieval times and beyond, far away from the civilized avenues of Paris and London, may have contributed in other ways to building this myth. There used to be a lack of variety in the diet in these places, especially in mountainous regions, and people would commonly suffer from things like goiter, which was caused by iodine deficiency. A lack of nutrients would not only have many people made more susceptible to disease, but in some cases may have exacerbated the effects of conditions hidden in their genes. And the way these vampire stories work for the 18th century, people living in London and Paris and reading the stories in papers, is that it tells a good story about how civilized and advanced we are and look at these superstitious Catholic peasants who lived on the boundaries of Europe. Interestingly enough, though, there were many cultures around the world in different continents and in different times that share the myth of the blood-sucking undead. There are some in the Philippines, there are some in Chile, there are some in Scotland, and some in the indigenous Australian tribes. It is very interesting that all these people in different parts of the planet all came up with sort of the same concepts and ideas independently. Essentially, the vampire myth comes from more than just disease. The vampire always seems to come from somewhere outside of the comforts of our own homes, be that a rural Transylvanian cottage, an English stately home, or ancient Athens. It always comes from somewhere else, the experts say. In ancient Greece, the barbarians from beyond the Greek world were cannibals and bloodsuckers and able to do all sorts of black magic that they weren't. In other places, it was pagan tribes. Even in South America, experts say, the vampiric creatures the Incas believed in were from the wilds beyond their cities. The vampire seems to be a vehicle not just for the diseases that we were not able to comprehend, but for all those strange unmapped places and the people that live in them too. Very, very interesting. And one last one. This one is from medicaldaily.com and it is another article about vampires and it is titled Real Life Vampires Separating Fact from Fiction About People Who Like to Drink Blood. This article came out in 2016 as well and it is by Dana Dovey. While the sexy and stylish vampires of HBO's True Blood may have been more than willing to step out of the coffin and make the world aware of their presence in real life, people who regularly enjoy drinking blood prefer to stay in the shadows of obscurity. Despite their unique palette, however, the modern-day vampire has less in common with Bram Stoker's beloved Dracula and is more like your average boy or girl next door. That is, if your neighbor also happens to enjoy drinking human blood. Puberty is hard for everyone. From awkward hair growth to hormone-fueled crushes, Mother Nature leaves no teen unscathed. However, for a small amount of the general population, about 5,000 or so from every major U.S. city, puberty comes with an additional twist. Dun-dun-dum, a thirst for drinking blood. Like many of puberty's surprises, this need to feed is both uncontrollable and confusing. While this may sound strange, Dr. John Edgar Browning, a researcher at the Georgia Institute of Technology who investigated the real vampire community in a 2015 study, 
explained that in most true vampires, it's far from supernatural. Its members are people who developed, usually during puberty, a sort of energy deficiency, and afterward found that if they consume blood, they feel better, Browning told Medical Daily. Browning also explained that many modern-day vampires don't identify with the dark, gothic culture of stereotypical vampires. Instead, they believe they have a mysterious illness that requires them to drink blood. So there's a psychological aspect to it, as well as just a medical component. Without this blood drinking, the people that are infected with this illness become weak and crippled, often experiencing severe headaches and stomach cramps. It is not until later, often much later, that the term vampire is adopted as a means of communicating their identity and to bring meaning to both their lives and to a bodily process they do not fully understand. To date, there is no medical proof or explanation for vampirism, although scientists have been fascinated by this practice for many centuries. Renfield syndrome is the term used to define those with clinical vampirism. So there actually is a clinical term used to describe these folks. This distinct compulsion to drink blood is essentially what is called vampirism. According to a 2011 paper on this condition, those with Renfield syndrome often have a childhood experience causing them to associate blood with excitement. During puberty, they may also come to associate this excitement with sexual arousal. However, Renfield syndrome is considered a psychiatric illness, not medical. And it is not the same as true vampirism as we understand it today. In the past, doctors theorized that vampirism may be related to tuberculosis, seeing as TB patients often cough up blood implying they had just ingested it. Even as early as 2002, researcher Nick Lane theorized that porphyria, a rare blood condition that also causes intense sensitivity to sunlight, may have inspired the tales of bloodthirsty creatures of the night. Still, despite the lack of empirical explanation, the symptoms are real enough for sufferers of vampirism. Without feeding, the vampire will become lethargic, sickly, depressed, and often go through physical suffering or discomfort, self-proclaimed real vampire Murdicus told the Daily Beast. CJ, another real vampire, told the BBC that she suffers from irritable bowels that can only be cured by consuming a sizable quantity somewhere between seven shot glasses to an even cup of blood. What's more, Browning told the Washington Post that one vampire he interviewed even required hospitalization following a prolonged absence from her quote-unquote medicine or the blood that she was consuming. It was only after her husband visited her in the hospital and gave her some of his blood that she was able to recover. Most real-life vampires get their blood supply from willing donors in an ethical manner. Any deviation from this would result in expulsion from the vampire community, Browning explained. Although many vampires have sought treatment or diagnosis from medical professionals, Browning said the outcome is always the same. No condition or abnormality can be found, so it appears as though many of these people self-diagnose. 
Dr. D.J. Williams, an associate professor of social work from, Ohio, from Idaho State University, who recently authored a 2014 study regarding real vampirism, told Medical Daily that vampires consider their condition very, very real, regardless of what the rest of society thinks of them. From my experience, many vampires seem to think that there is likely an undiscovered genetic or medical explanation for their condition. These quote-unquote real vampires believe they do not choose their condition. In other words, they report that they have a need for extra energy, which defines their vampiric identity. While drinking blood may seem like a perverse yet harmless habit, the practice does carry a number of actual medical risks. First off, humans aren't supposed to be drinking blood. While a blue streak every now and then isn't likely to do much harm, according to live science, blood can be toxic when it is consumed in large enough quantities. Blood is rich in iron, which is why it has such a metallic taste. Although iron is an essential nutrient for our health, we aren't able to effectively get rid of excess iron if we accidentally have too much. This means that if iron builds up in our bodies, we can have what is called hemochromatosis, which usually causes a number of serious health conditions like liver damage, depression, dehydration, fluid in the lungs, and then it can eventually lead to death. Not only is the blood itself potentially dangerous, but the pathogens it carries could also harm the real-life vampire. HIV may be the illness most commonly associated with blood transmission, but it is not the only one. According to the National Institute of Health, blood can also carry hepatitis B and C, and also a rare yet serious virus called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which we just spoke about in the last article, that is essentially the human version of mad cow disease. However, it seems that modern-day vampires understand these risks and have taken safeguards to protect their own health. Firstly, Browning explained that most real-life vampires and donor situations in these types of situations, generally both the donor and the vampire undergo a blood test first to safeguard against transmitting any pathogens. In addition, real-life vampires usually consume far too little blood to cause them any serious harm. Despite the safeguards taken by the real vampire community, the medical needs of this demographic may still be overlooked by health professionals. For his study, Williams interviewed interviewed several real vampires and found that many were uncomfortable sharing their blood drinking habits with their doctors due to the fear of being ridiculed and possibly diagnosed with a mental illness. Yikes. According to Williams, being open about drinking blood is an integral part of being a real vampire and it is really, really closely associated with physical and mental well-being. I think it's very important that doctors and clinicians are open to their clients' diverse beliefs, including personal identities, meaningful experiences, and lifestyles. The more open and non-judgmental clinicians are, the more likely they can help their clients, Williams told Medical Daily. I am not so sure about that. It seems like 
maybe we're taking this one just a step too far in the wrong direction when it comes to being open and accepting. There are some things that I think just cross the line a little bit and real life vampires at this point and this stage may be just a little bit too much. In any case, that is going to wrap the episode up for today. This is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to shoot us an email. We are at thehypoalmapodcast at gmail.com, and I will put that into the show notes as well as the articles referenced in today's show. Stay tuned for part two of this very, very special Halloween episode. And please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.